Hello, welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. Here we are early 2023. I am your host, Liz Reitzig, and Rachel Mills, our wonderful co-host, is here today. Good to be with you again, Liz. Looking forward to learning some stuff. Well, we do have a lot planned for today. We're going to dig deep into uh, something called the generally recognized as safe status for foods. But before that, Rachel, I want to make sure that people know how to find our previous episodes of the Nourishing Liberty podcast, where we cover a whole range of topics about our food systems and how we fit into them. And they are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So check us out, please. If you find any of this information helpful or useful, like and subscribe and share. Share. Share, exactly. We cover a whole range of topics. I've also done some really key interviews with other individuals to get nitty gritty on certain things. We've covered hunger issues and urban farming. Uh, One of the all-time favorites is the one where I interviewed a beekeeper and he has so much to say about farming and bees and honey. So be sure to check out other episodes if you're new to listening to us and come back. We're here just about every week, bringing you insights into the food systems. And discussion. And discussion, absolutely. Good for thought, pun intended. And Rachel, we both have a Substack, so you can find me on Substack at Raw Milk Mama. Milk Mama. And there I am covering, uh, I'm writing about some personal writing, but mostly it is about uh, some of the intricacies of our food system or some of the perspectives that I have based on now 20 years of working on the ground, on the inside, and really getting nitty gritty with what I'm seeing. And then Rachel, what's yours? My Substack is Rachel's Hot Takes. And I don't update it too often, uh, but when I have um, some political prognostication or observation that is longer than a tweet, I will will usually put it there. Um, If anyone is curious, I invite you to stop by and give me a sub. And I will not uh, flood your inbox because <laughs> I don't write very often, but every now and then. Yeah, I, I get something out weekly. So uh, look forward to those. And it, it'll always be interesting and informative. Yes, I'm sure. Okay, Rachel, today's topic is called GRAS. And that stands for the FDA's recognition of foods as generally recognized as safe. So that's what the acronym stands for, generally recognized as safe. Hey, I don't know anything about this, so you're going to have to educate me. Okay, well, so I'll start off with a little bit of a quick story. And hmm, there's, there's actually two two parts here I want to talk about. So um, I remember early on in childhood from a very early age, my mom, you know, my mom did a lot of home preparation of food and sometimes she would make something that she would think was 
uh, great or fun or something. And she would want to uh, maybe surprise us a little bit. And I have three siblings. And I remember that when, when she did that and she would say, here, try this. I would give her side eye like, what, what in that. And it wasn't because I didn't generally like what she cooked. It's just because I had this compelling need. I wanted to know what's in it. And, and I think it went a little bit beyond the curiosity of how is that cooked or what is that recipe? And it really went into, I want to know what I'm eating before I eat it. <laughs> That's your mom though. Even your mom. <laughs> well, it, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't distrust. I mean, except for maybe the occasional, like, did you put mushrooms in that? Right. <laughs> as a little kid, I love mushrooms, but as a little kid, maybe I didn't. So there was that tiny little bit of um, skepticism of, are you trying to sneak me something, you know, I don't like that. I think a lot of children have, but for me, it was really went beyond that. And it went into, I really want to know, I want to know what's in my food. Well, fast forward. I never stopped wanting to know. <laughs> Not surprising. Yeah. So when my first child was born, oh goodness, Rachel, more than 20 years ago now, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, I, I, that, that got stronger because now not only was I responsible for me, I was responsible for a whole nother human being. And I wanted to know that even more. And as I looked into foods and what was in them or how things got decided to be put in them, I learned about this category that the FDA has called generally recognized as safe. And I learned that some of the things that were in my child's food did not even meet the standard that the FDA set for generally recognized as safe. And quite frankly, I was surprised. And I've always known about this category and that it's not necessarily shall we say, on the surface of what it sounds like. <laughs> and looking into it more, it's almost like a, a rabbit hole of information and processes that I believe we, as a unsuspecting public, shall we say, should have more information about. We should, this, this, this should be easier to access. It, it should be something that we're all aware of as we go about our lives. So, that's what went into choosing the topic for today. It sounds uh, on the surface, pretty loosey goosey to me, like they don't want to test it. They just, you know, most people think this is safe. So we're just going to put it in a category. Yeah. Like maybe that's how it started. And then it became a catch all. Well, let's get just into guessing. that because. Facts are important. History is important. Yes, and yes, yes. It, I think that it actually started with the intention of recognizing that there's all these foods. So in 1958, that's when this became law, basically. And there was a recognition that here are all of these foods that humans have been using as ingredients and food for many years, sometimes hundreds of years, thousands of years, sometimes decades. And we had to have a way of recognizing all of those foods as like, hey, Vinegar is okay. You don't have to get special testing done on vinegar because we've been using it for literally thousands of years. Right. And 
having a way to classify some of those, that, that huge bucket of all these foods. And at the same time, of course, we had chemical industries that were up and coming. The industrial food system was whoosh, the, the tidal wave of those changes. But I want to start with, like, you know, like lead powder for makeup generally recognized as safe, like in the French Revolution with the lead powder all over their face, talcum powder for babies, you know, what could go wrong with that? That's fine. Well, we're going to get into <laughs> a little bit of that, but I'm going to start by reading sections of an article that I thought did an excellent job describing the history of it here and how this, how this came into play. So this is from Consumer Reports in August of 2016. And the article is titled, GRAS, The Hidden Substances in Your Food. The Food and Drug Administration has made permanent a rule that allows food companies to add new ingredients to the food supply with almost no federal oversight. Thousands of substances have already been added under the rule which was first proposed in 1997 and has effectively been in place ever since. The rule is meant to provide guidance for companies seeking to classify new food ingredients as SAFE or GRAS for generally recognized as SAFE. But it has been widely criticized by watchdog groups who say that it puts consumers at risk by allowing the food industry to bypass crucial safety checks for new ingredients. Those critics had hoped that the finalized version would include some major changes to the 97 draft. It did not. The GRAS designation, G-R-A-S, is rooted in a 1958 law that was meant to require companies to demonstrate the safety of prospective ingredients but created an exemption for common ingredients like vinegar and baking soda that were already widely used and known to be safe. The loophole was supposed to spare only the most time-tested substances from the rigors of pre-market approval. But in 1997, the FDA introduced a new rule that allowed companies to decide for themselves what ingredients qualify as GRAS and to report those designations to the FDA or not on a voluntary wow. basis. Okay, let's repeat that. In 1997, the FDA introduced a new rule that allowed companies to decide for themselves what ingredients qualify as GRAS and to report those designations or not voluntarily to the FDA. So much for oversight. Okay. For example, the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association with the acronym FEMA has classified several possible carcinogens as GRAS. And when pressed, failed to produce peer-reviewed safety data on those chemicals. Some GRAS designated substances like trans fats have been the subject of high profile criticism, but it's the unknown ingredients that have never been reported at all, let alone publicly evaluated that most worry scientists and advocates. Food additives have multiplied exponentially in the past half century from a few hundred chemicals to several thousand. 
They can be found in virtually any processed foods. That includes the foods we're feeding our children. Data suggests that the food industry is seeking FDA approval for fewer and fewer of these chemicals and is instead designating more and more of them as generally recognized as safe. In all, there are an estimated 1,000 GRAS substances for which safety decisions were made by the food industry without any notice at all to the FDA. Consumer groups have proposed several crucial fixes to the GRAS system. GRAS designation should not be granted to novel chemicals or to substances deemed risky by authoritative scientific bodies. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. <laughs> Sounds like the definition of <laughs> generally recognized as safe. GRAS designations should not be based on unpublished studies and should be made only by experts without a conflict of interest. Huh. Okay. The FDA should make GRAS notifications mandatory and public, not voluntary and secret. None of these suggestions were included in the final rule. In a press release, the FDA said that while GRAS substances are not subject to pre-market approval, they are still held to the same safety standards as other ingredients. Quote, the FDA can question the basis for an independent GRAS conclusion, whether notified or not, and take action as appropriate. End quote. The agency said. While the newly finalized rule for reporting GRAS substances is only voluntary, the agency said it strongly encourages companies to follow it. <laughs> that should work. <laughs> Perfectly, right? Okay. So uh, I will say, Rachel, in preparing and researching for this episode, uh, I have traveled down the rabbit hole of FDA regulations, of the history of generally recognized as safe, of the laws, and minutiae in here. And I would strongly encourage anyone to glance through some of the resources that I'm going to post as links for this episode, because it is mind-blowing. It is absolutely mind-blowing some of the things you can find both in the statute, the 1958 statute, and of course it's been updated. And the FDA actually has a searchable database of substances that are in their listing as generally recognized as safe. So if you're interested in an ingredient or if you're wondering if something uh, has an effect on you, you can literally look it up in the database. You can see if it got generally recognized as safe status and the process that it went through. Now, that being said, that is only that database, I believe is only as of 1997. I don't think it goes, I don't think it predates that. Yeah. It's almost like I have a false sense of security when the FDA um, puts their rubber stamp on something. It's almost like started off as, you know, good intentions and reasonable uh, regulation, but then kind of went off the rails somewhere. 
but I digress. That That's very interesting. It is. It's fascinating. Now I have one more paragraph to read okay. from, and this is from a different article. This one is from Food Safety News and it is a 2014 article. Um, and this says there's, there's two routes. This is very short. Two routes to generally recognized as safe. Companies determine whether a substance is generally recognized as safe via one of two available routes. The first route is available for substances that have been used in food before 1958. Substances used in food before 1958 are GRAS if there is a substantial history of consumption of the substance in food by a significant number of consumers. The second route is available if the substance was not used in food before 1958. If so, then the company makes the GRAS determination through scientific procedures. So that in and of itself begs a few questions. <laughs> because science. <laughs> is that a scientific procedure? Because science. Yeah. Well, and, and Rachel, one of the things to keep in mind here is that when the FDA looks at something like this, if they look at it, right, what they're focused on is acute effects rather than chronic. And I've got a lot of notes here that I'm going to be referring to because this stuff is so complicated. And some of the additives and the things, they're so hard to read and pronounce and understand. And the thing is, is I, I want to be clear that something like vinegar, right? We have a, um, a chemical name for it, acetic acid. And so that makes it sound like something different than vinegar, but it's very simple. It's the same thing. And things like that, it, we understand why these are generally recognized as safe. And I think that there, there, there's an important component to that, that like, if we're going to grow vegetables in our backyard, we like humans have done for many thousands of years, then there has to be a route to being like, okay, this is a food we can eat. And this is a shareable food, right? Yeah. There has to be a route for that. And the problem comes in when you, you start with the industrialized foods and you start um, modifying things and changing things and extracting certain things that are then isolated from the rest of a whole food, right? So a couple of things to look at and what for a couple of examples here. Um, should, should we go over the definition between acute and chronic? Okay, yeah, acute. That, that's an important distinction. Acute is like, um, like, it, like strychnine poisoning or arsenic, you fall over dead, you know, foaming at the mouth right then and there when you eat it. But chronic is like, long-term like inflammation or, you know, carcinogen that builds up over time. Yep. Yep. Would you agree yep. with that? Yes. Thank you for clarifying that because we always want to make sure that we are being really clear in the words we're using and how we're using them. That's important. Okay. Yeah. And I think also that, um, how to put it, I think that there's a lot more to understanding the chronic effects of some of these things, because first of all, there's the ingredient itself, right? And do we know the long-term effect of it? And second of all, these never occur in isolation, right? So you're getting an additive in food 
that might have a chronic effect all by itself, or it might have a chronic effect when you combine it with other things that are being added. And very similar to the concept of you want to be careful about what medications you take together because they have synergistic effects. And sometimes those synergistic effects are, are not great for us. And so in the same way, that can happen with our food. Yeah. And unless something, we could, something could have like a small load of something, but cumulative with other food sources, it becomes, you know, close to toxic or semi-toxic or just not good for you. Yeah. And that how do we sense. know? How do we know unless we know what we're eating? Yeah. 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 Um, so one example, and this, this one I want to share is in the code. Uh, it's not in the database of a thousand plus <clears throat> from 1997. This one's in the code and it's the, the section of code is 21 CFR. And then all of these are extending from 101 to the 180s. And there's a lot in between there. So uh, my recommendation would be if you want to look up specific things, use your keyword search for the chemical that you're looking up and search that plus um, 21 CFR. And you'll see if it's anywhere in the code. So this one is butylated hydroxyanisole. BHA. Sounds, sounds safe to me. <laughs> I have no idea if I said that correctly. I am not a chemist. I do not just use eat that words. straight for breakfast, you know, just on a regular basis. Yeah, well, and this one's in the code, right? So I said that. Um, okay. And it is, it can cause kidney and liver damage. And it is considered a possible carcinogen. Yet it is generally recognized as safe as a food additive. What is it added for? Is it delicious? <laughs> I think it's a preservative. Preservative, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so then I wanna, I wanna look at another section of the code. And this one is um, again, 21 CFR section 101.9. And this has to do with nutritional labeling of food. Okay, so but all of these things are mixed together, intertwined because we have these things that get generally recognized as safe status, but they still have to be labeled, right? They still go on the ingredient labels. And there's all kinds of rules and regulations around that, which is whew, overwhelming. So synthetic non-digestible carbohydrates like guar gum, which is in a lot of food, um, they are, uh, they, they, they do need to be listed, but they are generally recognized as safe. Okay, so there's just this whole category of synthetic fibers that just generally recognized as safe. Okay, and then regarding synthetic nutrients. And here's something that just to keep in mind. So whether or not, yeah. So generally recognized as safe, synthetic nutrients in our food. A label is not allowed to imply that a natural vitamin in our food, naturally occurring, is in any way superior to added or synthetic vitamins. If a label in any way suggests that, that is considered a misbranded food. Okay. So be aware because <laughs> there's all kinds of synthetic vitamins added to foods. And 
according to that rule, that piece of the code right there, in no way can food that holds those vitamins naturally occurring be considered or labeled or talked about as superior to the synthetic versions. It's like they get equal standing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So as an illustration, as an example of the kind of harm that this status can do, I want to take a look at trans fats. And by this time, it's 2023, we all know that trans fats are a danger sign, right? But it took a long time. And we have covered this, or at least I covered this earlier on in the podcast. I think I was covering it with a, um, with, with a chemist, actually, the history of trans fats. Do you remember this history, Rachel, where we talked about how Crisco started? Oh, yeah, that was a while back. Yeah. 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 So just a recap very briefly. Yeah, yeah. We got trans fats because uh, candle manufacturers needed more material to make candles. And there was a lot of processing of cotton for the fiber for clothing. And there was a waste product, which was the cotton seed. And so they, the chemical companies hired these chemists to figure out how to turn this waste product, cotton seeds, into a product that could be burned for candle fuel, right? Mm-hmm. And they did. They figured it out. And they got Crisco, which stands for crystallized cottonseed oil. Actually, that I think that comes a little bit later. But they got this trans fat that looked like a good fat for, it looked very similar to what they were using for candle making prior to that, which was tallow and and lard a lot of times. But then what happened was the light bulb. (laughs) And so suddenly, instead of having all of this great waste product that they were turning into a profit, they had all of this extra stuff that nobody wanted anymore because we have light bulbs instead of candles everywhere. So they thought, okay, well, we're going to repackage this as a health food. And that is where Crisco came in and they marketed it to, especially to Jewish housewives because they couldn't use lard in their cooking, but here was something that looked and acted like lard, but it wasn't lard. Oh, wow. Cause lard is from pigs. Lard is from pigs. Yeah. yeah. And of course there's also tallow, but, um, it's a lot more scarce. It's harder. That's, that's beef fat. Right. Yeah. And so. Crisco's hydrogenated cottonseed oil and Procter and Gamble got the patent on it in 1909. And in 1911 is when they started advertising and marketing Crisco. And one estimation of the the damage that this did to Americans is that before 1990, before it started coming under scrutiny, there are 20,000 deaths annually attributed to Crisco or hydrogenated vegetable oils. Yeah, it's shocking, right? So vegetable oil, like cottonseed, would be vegetable oil. Yeah, cottonseed would be vegetable oil, soy, soybean oil. So the, the big four are cotton, canola, soy, and corn. Those are the big four. You also have uh sunflower and um safflower, but the big four are corn, cotton, canola, and soy. 
And if you think about going back to GRAS, GRAS status has a whole listing of direct food additives. So that means like preservatives, uh, flavor additives that go directly in our food. And then they have other lists for uh, items that are added to uh, processing methods or packaging, right? So these there's there's several lists for grass status. So think about the cardboard box that some of your food comes in. That has things that are on the grass status as well, on that list as well. And it makes sense if something's going to be touching our food, we should know that whatever it is, isn't going to leach toxic chemicals into the food that we're going to be eating. Same thing with the processes, right? That if a food is going through an extraction process, that whatever is used in that extraction process is also reasonably not going to kill us, <laughs> right? At least not right away. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, so do we know that to be true for those four big oils? Do we know that the solvents used are not terribly toxic? I mean, this is where the this this is where the rabbit hole takes you, right? Yeah, Maybe it's like before 1958, every single thing we ever ate was safe, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, no, right? Because we knew through, uh, shall we say, our ancestors cleverly figured out some of these things. Um, and probably to some extent, we did various forms of animal testing really early on in civilization for like new mushroom varieties or oh, yeah. <laughs> plants that looked kind of suspicious. Um, so, but we, we have a good, shall we say, cultural uh, crowdsourced knowledge of uh, this thing is really toxic. Don't eat it. Uh, yeah. It killed the rabbit that ate it. Or uh, we know because stories of so-and-so's child ate something 500 years ago. And now we know, anecdata. don't touch that. Today, that would be called anecdata. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anecdotal. Yeah. Anecdotal evidence, right? Yeah. But so it's it's not to say that everything before 1958 was safe, but here's the thing, Rachel, trans fats got added to that list yeah. because they were widely consumed and people didn't kill over and die right after eating it, right? This was a buildup, <clears throat> yeah. long-term effect. <clears throat> so it wasn't until July of 2003 that the FDA required manufacturers to list trans fats. But here's the catch. There's always a catch. If it was under 0.5 grams per serving, it didn't have to be listed. Huh. So manufacturers changed that so that the per serving amount, they just changed the serving size. Sure. Make the so serving size bigger. Also, there was still no requirement to list trans fat on institutional food packaging. So think about that for a second. Schools, hospitals, cafeterias were all unable to even evaluate trans fat levels. They didn't need to be listed. And it was finally in November of 2013. It was only 10 years ago 
that the FDA finally issues preliminary determination that trans fats are no longer generally recognized as safe. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, that's progress, right? Well, things, things can change. Things can change, <laughs> but we can change things a lot faster. By just simply knowing what we're eating. Absolutely. Knowing what we're eating, being really careful, right? Because if, if you have an ingredient list on your food and it's like 25 ingredients long or maybe 10 ingredients long, there's already a lot of questions on there. And then there's the questions of, okay, what about this process is hidden? Like, what are the things that are generally recognized as safe within the process of producing this food that don't even make the list? Yeah. Yeah. They're just considered background. Yeah. Well, you, there's an element of personal responsibility here. You have to take responsibility for your own food, your own ingredients. I think if anything, this kind of demonstrates that um, you can't always take the FDA's word for things. You know, you might be you might be giving being given a false sense of security and you need to decide for yourself. You need to be your own FDA. Totally. I love that analogy. Be your own, <laughs> your own watchdog, your own questioner, right? Yeah. And yeah, also- because there, there's a lot of conflicts of interest. There's revolving doors, there's regulatory capture. You know, there, there's a lot of things to consider that uh, you guys take into consideration. Do you really want to trust, trust all of these ingredients? So this is very eye-opening. I'm not aware of these issues. And it always comes back to that taking personal responsibility and really knowing your own food source as much as as possible. possible. (laughs) Yeah. There's always going to be those blind spots. There's always going to be times that you're going to choose to eat out with friends, knowing that you don't know what's in it. Mm -hmm. And we're always going to have those circumstances and those exceptions. Yeah, because we exist in this world. Like this is the world we live in. We're not, you know, I I, I guess the only truly safe place would be an island somewhere (laughs) where where your food chain, your supply chain is completely self-contained. And, but I mean, we don't, we don't live in that world. Um, Right, right. But there's, there's small steps that I think we can take to make things better for ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, it's, it's always a matter of uh, degrees. Or is this how you're eating every single day, every single meal? Or are you choosing to forego that responsibility maybe once or twice a month of knowing what's in your food? And one of the things that you can do as a, a responsible, concerned consumer is absolutely read ingredient labels and stick to things that have one or two ingredients and then make stuff at home. That's 
always a really great option. And you know what? It opens up a whole entire world of fun and creativity as well. Because we don't need, I mean, for our food to be need all of these weird and crazy chemicals and additives and preservatives in, food is amazing when it comes right out of the ground or right out of the source. You are not going to get better food than that. It's flavorful. It's nutritious. It is fun. I mean, it's time to have fun. I like that. I like that. It's not about deprivation. It's about just, you know, a, a different form of expression, a different, a different way to eat, not deprivation. Exactly. Yeah. And, and getting as close to the source as possible, right? For example, I live in a part of the world that's never going to grow bananas and olives. So if I want olive oil, I need to find somebody I feel comfortable with in a place where that does grow and understand that process. Thank goodness I have a wonderful <laughs> olive farmer <laughs> and understand all of that process so that if I want olive oil and I want it to be one ingredient olive oil that just is olive oil, thank you very much, that I have confidence in that source. And so it's not to say that like you can't eat anything that's not grown in your region. You can, you can have fun with that. You can find sources that work for you without wondering, hmm, does this have all of those additives or all of those extractive processes? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Food for thought. Your sound isn't coming through. Oh, am I muted? No, now you're good. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I wanted to give you an update on uh, L-lysine. We had a, a discussion about L-lysine last week and yep. I went down a little rabbit hole about L-lysine and um, this stuff is fascinating. I ended up buying two bottles of um, L-lysine um, like um, supplements. Okay. So yeah, I I think this stuff is fascinating. Just the the health benefits from and and arginine is is something that people supplement too, but I yeah. think it's the balance or the imbalance that you create based on if you're feeling a little bit uh, fluey, <laughs> yeah. yes. or if you need a little immune boost, then you know tip the balance in the favor of L-lysine. So I think that stuff is fascinating. Well, um, and for anybody who missed it, we went into detail on L-lysine, which is an amino acid protein that is reportedly missing from some of the chicken feeds and the relationship, what we discussed is the relationship between L-lysine and, uh, viral the, replication, viral replication. Yes. Yes. I was going to try to add a few more details in there, but it didn't work, but essentially the impact that supplementing with L-lysine has on humans and animals to prevent viral replication. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's fascinating. And the, and the mechanism, um, because it, uh, viruses need arginine to replicate, but the L-lysine looks so much like arginine that the virus will take L-lysine if it's more available. And then that stops the replication. So that's why it, it works 
it that's why it, it's it's a good antiviral. It's um, yeah. So next time I feel the cold sore coming on, I'm gonna uh, take some L-lysine and see if that stops it. Yes, and for anybody listening, if you did not catch that episode, we do get into detail on this, so be sure to listen to it. It's it's titled that egg shortages. I'll link to it in this one's episode. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite fascinating, and we really dug into that one. Yeah, that was that was new information. All right, um, well, that's a wrap. Yep. Yeah. And remember. Eat for health, <laughs> know your neighbor and grow some food. Yep. All right, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.